people think that it's Youth Sunday or something when I come and speak at places, but it's not. Um, it could be, but it's it's not because I'm here. But that just something I'm going to thank my parents for later. And uh, it's it's funny. I, I I told my mom I I don't I'm not very good at communication as far as like things that I'm going to do. So a lot of things my mom will find out what I'm doing afterwards. She'll, she'll call and say, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, just because. So um, she found out that I was going to be here before I actually am here. And so she called and said, hey, can I send that email out and let everybody know that you're going to be here? And I was, um, when, and she said, to the family. Now, if you know my mother, if you don't, you should meet her. Um, but I'm assuming that you do. And uh, her family is not just like my brother. It's hundreds of people, and uh, so I'm, I haven't become like Jesus in every way, but in one way I have become like Jesus, and it's hard to tell my mother no. That's, Jesus had that problem, but uh, so I just said, yes, yeah, send out the email, so she sent it out the email, and so it's good to have some people here that aren't normally here. Thanks, Mom, for taking care of that, and uh, just while we're on family, uh, my brother's here, and I just want to share something about my brother. Um, my brother and I went to a private, really small Christian school when we were younger. And I'm not going to name the name because um, just because of what I think about it. But uh, <laughs> it, there were there were some good things about it. I'm I'm not going to trash it, but uh, it it had certain things that it taught us and instilled in us. And this was my brother's Bible when he was there. And now I have it, and I'm glad I, I picked it up when I was 18 and took it to college. And then when I when I met uh, my wife, she had the exact same Bible, and that's when, that's how we knew that we were supposed to get married. But um, <laughs> so the Lord works in mysterious ways there. But so this was my brother's Bible when he was in elementary school, and and they apparently were studying uh, Daniel, not just Daniel in the Lion's Den. That's the kind of school we went to. So beyond Daniel in the Lion's Den, when you were like eight, and so he here's a passage. I'm just going to read a single verse and then explain to you what in his handwriting is written right here. Chapter 5, verse 4 of Daniel says, They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, my brother has labeled what those meant to him when he was in elementary school. Have you ever, have I ever shown you this? Okay. Just making sure. Gold is TV. Silver is music, because you couldn't do the 2-4 beat at this school. You had to do the offbeat. Bronze is computer, because computers were really big back then. Iron was play, P-L-A-Y, because you just couldn't be idle, and you couldn't waste time. So the fact that play was a, was a god to him at that point will let you know about this school. Okay, Stone was math. That was, okay. And then my favorite one was wood, and that was me. It says, so. And it says clay, and then in parentheses it says mean, right there. So that's um, where we've come from. So hopefully uh, you won't get much of that in what I'm going to say, or I will never be invited back here again, or anywhere else. Okay. Let me pray real quick. Uh, I know I've already been prayed for, but I just want to pray. Just what I like to do. So let's pray.
Father, uh, I do thank you for this opportunity. And uh, Lord, I, I just want to confess that you're better than we think. And uh, so, Lord, I ask today that you would come and help us uh, just to have a renewed mind and to understand a little bit more about you and a little bit more about ourselves. And Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David asked me to uh, just give any message that I thought would be um, like a message that, that I'm comfortable with or so, something that I've done before that he considered a um, good one. Uh, so that was his instructions to me. And so I, I, I've given this talk a few times. Some of you might have heard a little bit of, of it maybe. But um, it's something that's really transformed my life. And so I'm, I'm happy to share this. This is going to be easy for me to share. But uh, it comes from the premise of there's a proverb that says, as a man thinks, so he is. And so the way that we think, and the way that we, especially the way that we think about God and the way that we conceive uh, God thinking about us, I believe is the most important thing in the Christian life uh, because it, it will uh, determine the way that we behave. It will determine the way that we respond. And um, so because of that, I, I want to talk about a little bit about how we perceive God and how we perceive ourselves when we sin because if... Hopefully, y'all are, y'all are all sinners. If you're not, I'd like to meet you afterwards, and we can talk, and then you can pray for me. But um, I'm, I'm assuming that all of us are sinners, that not only have we sinned, but, but at times we do sin. And because of that, we need to understand how God responds to us in our sin and how we should respond to God in our sin. Um, but again, it, it is so important to understand uh, or to, to, to realize how we think about God and, and, and things like that because it will determine what we do. Deborah and I, um, among a lot of other things that we have our hands in, have 10 couples right now that we're leading through premarital counseling. And uh, if they perceived us as pathological liars, and if they thought that I beat my wife, you know, after the session, for if any mistakes that she made, we probably wouldn't have 10 couples come in to, to visit our house. We'd have about six cop cars, and uh, we would be in jail. And so it's really, really important. It's, I just can't stress enough. It's really important to understand uh, how we view God. And so I want to read from Revelation 3. This is a very popular passage uh, for people to, to talk out of because it has one of the most graphic images, um, I think, in the New Testament about God. And, and just to be honest with you, one of the most uh, misunderstood passages um, just to give you a little background on this passage, this passage has been used twice in my life uh, in very significant ways. The first time was when I was a junior in high school, and there's some people in here that I actually went to high school with, so um, you, you know firsthand what I'm talking about. I was a different person in high school. I, I would not have gotten most likely to be standing at Stonebridge Church in 2010 in high school. Um, but I was very wild, but I would go to youth camp every year because that's what you did. You know, it doesn't matter what you did. You just went to youth camp, if for nothing else, to, to meet girls. But um, so I was there, and I walked through Mobley Hall one time during a free time, and Tom Tanner was sitting up in the bleachers, and I went wide to avoid him. And he goes, hey. And I was like, oh, crap. And so he signaled me over here. I could take you to the bleacher, the exact spot we were that day, because he just sat me down, and he just let me have it. In a good way, but he let me have it. And he used this passage, and he says, he said, God's about to vomit you out of his mouth. And I was like, okie dokie, that's uh, <laughs> pretty, 
free time, I'm just going to try to play ping pong here, but, um, you know, I, I, was, I was apparently vomit at that point. But um, So that kind of stirred me a little bit to try to get back on the right track. So that was a very important passage then. And then about five years ago, I was studying this passage at the very beginning when I first started seminary. And um, God used it in a completely different way. So I'm gonna, we're going to look at it mostly in that second light. But I, I do want to explain a little bit how most people view this passage. So starting in 14, it says, And the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have nothing, or sorry, and have become wealthy, and you have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, most people stop there because it's really hard to go on um, after that point. Uh, just that image of God vomiting uh, someone out of their mouth or an entire church out of their mouth. Uh, but just to give you a little background, this church, there's seven churches here that Jesus talks to. And at all of them, or the first six, have at least one redeemable quality about them that Jesus highlights. So if you, if you went through Revelation 2 and 3, you'd see each church highlighted, God says, what they're good at, where they've fallen short, and then what to do in response to that. And then we get to the church of Laodicea, and they have nothing good to say about them. Jesus can't find one good thing to say about them in his summary of their church life. And so, whoa, how about that? Thanks, Mike. Mike's just playing with me. We, we play fantasy football against one another, and so he's just getting me back for the ways that I treat him on the fantasy football field. But um, So anyway, uh, Church of Laodicea has nothing good to say about them. Normally, we save the best for last. Jesus saved the worst for last. So this is the worst church that's out there. And he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, most people would say, uh, or most people preach that message this way. God is in the Bible saying that he wants you to either be hot or he wants you to be cold. So if you're lukewarm, then you get vomited out of God's mouth. Now, in, early, or, sorry, in recent Christian history, we've used the term lukewarm to describe someone who's kind of a has-be, someone who's kind of halfway in the church and halfway out, or halfway into the Lord and halfway out. Um, and so this, this passage has become very popular because it, it gives us language to say you either need to be hot hot for passion with Jesus, or cold, but if you're lukewarm, God hates it. Now, that's a, that's a very graphic image, a very powerful image, an image that was used in my life when I was 16, so I'm not knocking that image, but um, it just doesn't make sense in light of God's heart at all, because if you, if you read beyond that passage in any direction, you're going to see that God desires that all men are to be saved. And so if he desires that, then why would he desire us in this passage to be cold and to not, to not want him? Uh, I just don't think that he does. And so this, this image is great, but I want to kind of go back through and show you what I think that God is trying to do in this passage. So this is going to be like verse by verse. Uh, this is, um, it's, you're just going to feel like you're being taught this little passage. So here we go. Verse uh, 15, he says, I'm going to read it again, but we're going to talk about it in a different way. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, and that I would that you're caught, or sorry, cold nor hot. Laodicea is in this area. This is the area right here. There it is. 
six miles to the east, there's a hot spring. Six miles to the west, there's a cold spring. This is in real life. Uh, this, isn't, this is like real life. So the Laodiceans, incredibly industrious people, so they build an aqueduct system from the hot spring into their city. And they build an aqueduct system from the cold spring into their city. Because people would travel to the hot spring for medicinal purposes and travel to the cold spring for refreshing purposes. And they're like, hey, let's just bring this right into us. So they built this huge system and had running water in their city in like 60 AD, which was pretty impressive. The problem is, is that as the cold water ran six miles down, uh, it would become warmer. And as the hot water ran six miles down, it would become a little cooler. And so all the people in Laodicea, even though they had running water, they had lukewarm water. And when they would drink it, it would make them nauseous. I don't know if you've ever had lukewarm water. It's just not tasty uh, at all. And so uh, God here, so Jesus, is not saying, I want to vomit you out of my mouth because you're not passionate for me. What he's basically doing is what uh, Jason Bourne did in the second Bourne movie when he called Pamela Landy, and he's talking to her, and then he goes, hey, you need to get some rest because you look tired. And then the, the camera draws back, and the music goes, you know, that, you know that part? If you haven't seen it, they're amazing. But he's just letting her know, hey, I know what you're doing, and I know who you are, and I can see you even though you didn't know that I could see you. So this whole, these first four verses, Jesus is just exposing the Laodiceans to the fact that he knows everything about them. So it really has nothing to do with their passion for him. It has everything to do with the fact that they had taken something that was a good thing and made it a bad thing for everybody, and God was about to expose them on it. So when and it comes to our sin, this is kind of the flow that we're going to see. God knows everything about our sin, and we're about to see how detailed he's about to get with the Laodiceans about how they've blown it. But then he offers us hope. So let's look in verse 17. Okay, It says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich, white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Now, wh why would God say all that stuff? It's, it's a little weird unless you know kind of the context of what's going on here. Again, Laodiceans, incredibly industrious people, but the sin, their major sin, their major flaw was that they were full of pride and they were just completely self-reliant. And so God is about to expose that sin in their life. So this is how he does it. He says, because you say I am rich and I become wealthy and have need of nothing. In 60 AD, there was a huge earthquake in this area, and the entire Laodicean city was, was destroyed. But instead of having to get money from the government to, to rebuild their city, they were so wealthy, they were able to rebuild their city by themselves without any help from the government. And they were extremely, extremely proud of the fact that they were that wealthy that they could do things without any help whatsoever. So they, they rebuilt their entire city with their own funds. And God's saying, I know that you think that you're wealthy and that you have, that you have need of nothing, but you actually have need of me. Then he says, I advise you to buy gold from me refined by fire 
that you may become rich. They had their own banking system, the church in, in Laodicea, and they actually had their own mint, and they would print their own gold coins with their idols on it and with their gods on it just to prove that they could do whatever they wanted to with money because they were that wealthy. And God's saying, I know that you think that you're rich, but you actually need me. I know that you think that you have gold, but you actually need my gold. Then he says, you need to get white garments so that you can clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed. The only place in the planet at that point in history uh, that could, that, or Laodicea was the only place that had black sheep. Every other place in the entire world had white sheep. But for some reason, Laodiceans had black sheep. And they would take their wool and sew it and make these black garments, and they were sold all over the world at that point to, to signify that if you were wealthy enough, then you could buy, you could buy black wool. And they were extremely proud and extremely wealthy because of the way that they could sell black wool. And so Jesus here says, you need white garments. He's saying, I know that you're proud of your black wool. He says, but you actually need the garment that I can give you. And then finally, he says, you need eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. But in Laodicea, they had a, they had a, uh, basically a medical school. And the thing that they were known for is that they made these little rolls of putty, which they, if you got them wet, they would turn into salve. And they were for people who were blind, and you could put it on your eyes, and it would help you to see better. And so that's, they were, every, people all over the world would either come to learn how to make this salve or come to receive the treatment that they could, they could get there just so that they could learn how to see better. And they were, that's what they were known for. And Jesus says, I know that you have eye salve that you give to people, but you actually need my eye salve so that you can see uh, what I want you to see. So what has Jesus done? Jesus has taken this church that he's already labeled as the worst one because he had nothing good to say about him at this point and, sh- and exposed every area of their life where they had become self-reliant and prideful. And, and he just says, look, I know everything about you. Proverbs 5.21 says that all of the ways of man are before God. And so it, in the ways that, that they were sinful, uh, he knew even more of the ways that they were sinful. In the ways that we are sinful, in the ways that we blow it, in the ways that we try to hide it, in the way that we fall short, God knows even more that we are that, that we are sinful beyond the things that we can even comprehend. So the good news is, is that the passage and the, the address that Jesus is giving to the Laodiceans doesn't end here. Most of us end here, and then we get really nervous and get really uh, afraid to go and to approach God because of how sinful he knows we are and because of how much we know that he doesn't like sin. And I'm not here to tell you that Jesus doesn't like sin because he doesn't. He doesn't like it at all. But the good news is, is that he doesn't stop at his distaste and his disdain for sin. And most of us, I believe, at times do just from a mental standpoint because we're afraid to really approach God when we sin. We, there's, most of us kind of go through this time where we think that if we can just wait it out and do a little bit better, then God will see that we've tried and then we can approach him and really enter into his presence again. There's that, there's that little waiting period and there really doesn't need to be that waiting period at all. Uh, 
when I was a senior in high school, I got sent to the principal's office just once. Um, and it was because of some things that I was doing to the younger kids, who some of them are actually in the room, because um, they were trying to get into Key Club, which was this thing that, I don't, it was weird. We were supposed to do service projects, but we never did. We just took up everyone's dues and then had a Christmas party. But um, <laughs> we like made them do things. And so I got sent to the principal's office for that. Now I remember sitting in the principal's office and all I could think about was letting him get finished, just laying into me. I'll say I'm sorry and then I'll get out of there as soon as possible. I'll just get things fixed and then I'm just gonna get out of there because I knew that he was very angry because I could see it in his face. Um, and every time I saw him afterwards, I could see it in his face uh, that he was still just very angry. Um, and so I believe that that image of that angry principle, uh, a lot of us will have that image of the Lord when we blow it because we, just, we know that, he's, that he knows that we've blown it. And if we can just get in there, get a little forgiveness, get a little blood shined on that one, and then we can just get on out, then we'll be good again with God. And uh, I just don't believe that's God's heart at all. Uh, so here we're about to see what God's heart is when we blow it, when we actually sin. And it says, 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So the only instruction that he gives the worst church in the planet at this point is all they have to do is repent. So all they have to do is recognize the fact that they have blown it. That's, that's their job. And the interesting thing is that he begins to uh, speak to them, and when he says, those whom I love. Now, when Deborah and I do marriage counseling, we talk to couples a lot about communication. And the one thing that we talk to them a lot about is tone. And I have terrible tone when it comes to communication with my wife. Um, I just, I have to learn tone, like, really, really well, because my tone will say one thing, but I actually mean the other thing. And there's that big gap there, and that's what causes uh, fights. So we, uh, we have all this breakdown about what communication is, and they say that, that tone is 38% of communication. Now, we have no idea what God's tone is because we don't hear him say these words. But I believe that most of us, and especially the Laodiceans, were assuming that his tone was angry or assuming that his tone had, was full of disappointment because of what they had done here. But he says, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I think that we have to assume the best on God's tone and assume the best, or assume that his tone is not based on this image of him vomiting at us out of his mouth, but base it on the fact that he's come to save sinners and the tone of this passage changes. It's not you have done this, you have done this, you have done this, so it's, I know that you've done this, but. I think there's a big but right here in 19, a really big one. And he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and re re repent. Reprove is just to uh, unearth something, so he's unearthed their sin, and then discipline is to teach correctly, and so he's about to teach them correctly. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and he will dine with him, and he with me. So the worst church in the planet at this point has blown it more than anyone else, 
And Jesus comes straight up to their door and says, all you've got to do, all you've got to do is hear me and open the door. So it's not that the Laodiceans have to do all this work to get back to this point to where Jesus is. It's Jesus does all the work and comes straight to them and says, I'm knocking on your door. He's not waiting for us to knock on his door the right way or with a really regretful way or with a lot of good promises, and you say, I'll do this next time, or I'll never do that this time, Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm knocking on your door. He's knocking on the worst church's door, and so I'm just assuming that Stonebridge is a little bit better than the Church of Laodicea. I think that's a fair, fair assumption. Okay, I hope that's a fair assumption. And even if you're not, it doesn't matter, because even if you were as bad as the Laodiceans, Jesus still stands at your door every time you blow it, and he knocks. And he knocks, and he knocks, not just one time, every time. He is always knocking at your door when you sin. And he says, if you open it, then he will come into you, and he will dine with you, and then you will dine with him. Now, my parents have given me a lot of things. One thing is they've given me appreciation of food beyond normalcy. Um, So much so that most people in Athens call me a food snob. And they're like, oh, gosh, you're a food snob. Oh, gosh, you're a food snob. You would never eat here, like I know, because life's too short to eat at those kind of places. You know what I mean? I'm not going to name those places because those could be your favorites. But um, my parents, I don't know how many years ago it was that they went to the French Laundry. I think the cones were there, too. Uh, So they went to this restaurant called the French Laundry. And uh, you had to call, like, months in advance, and you had to spend way too much money uh, to eat at this place. But this is the way, if you just ever want to see my parents light up, you say, how was the French Laundry? And you'll just see them light up because of the experience they had of the feast that they had of, like, the closest thing to perfect food in America that you can touch. And that's Thomas Keller makes all that food. And I think about that. It's one of my things on my bucket list is to eat at the French Laundry. You know, I just, before I go, I just need to do that. Um, But... In comparison to the feast of the Lord, uh, it just doesn't compare. The best thing that you've ever had, the most enjoyable experience you've ever had, just with people and food and all, how wonderful those experiences can be, it just doesn't compare. And most of us, when we sin, we think that God will just let us back into the door, but then we need to just stand on the outskirts because we're not worthy enough to be in his presence. But in the, in the place when you are most sinful, all you have to do is repent. All you have to do is recognize what you've done, and then you're ushered in to the feast. You don't have to wait. You, there's not going to be an hour waiting time for this feast. It's immediate. Right when you sin and repent, you're right back in to the feast. And then here's the best part. This is the part that just I just can't get enough of right here. This is verse 21. Sorry, yes, 21. And he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a throne. Hopefully you have. But this is going to be our throne today. So again, Church of Laodicea, the worst church out there. The ones who have just completely, completely blown it. And he says to the one who overcomes, so the one who repents of his sin and overcomes that sin, he says, I will grant him, 
the opportunity to sit with me on my throne. Now, I've seen a lot of thrones. You've seen pictures of them. We've gone to weird places and seen actual people sit on thrones. I've never seen a two-seater throne. I don't know if you have. Just never seen a two-seater. A throne signifies that the one person who sits in that throne has all authority and all power. That's the purpose of a throne, to distinguish that person amongst everybody else. So to the church of Laodicea and to you, because this passage is for us as well, when you sin, when you've blown it, when you've repeated over and over the things that you wish that you never had, once you repent and recognize the fact that you've blown it, God opens the door, comes into you, invites you into his feast, and he says, you get to sit with me on my throne. So if Jesus is sitting on his throne, and he says, welcome back, come on up, the only place that you get to sit is right on his lap. So you don't have to sit beside him, you don't have to kneel before him and kiss his feet and wish that you were doing better. You don't have to get behind him and rub his shoulders and make all these promises and say, Jesus, I promise next time, but I promise next time, next time. Just let me make this up to you. Just let me make this up to you. You are seated on the lap of Jesus right when you repent, right when you repent. That's where you belong, and that's where you're invited to. And most of us work ourselves off of his lap into some kind of position of submission and servanthood because we think that we've got to earn it to get here. And you have to do absolutely nothing except for recognize the fact that you've blown it. My granddad, my mother's father, was uh, an awesome guy. He passed away a few years ago, but he lived on Hope Street. And we would always go to his, his house, and right when we'd get out, my brother and I would just take off in towards his door. We would open the door, and my grandmother would always be sitting there in the laundry room or in the kitchen, which was weird because she didn't really cook that much. So I don't know why she was there. Um, it's strange. I've, I've never been able to figure it out. And we would just, we would just run right past her, not because we didn't like her, but just because there was this prize there. And they had these swinging doors, which you can, that's dated, okay? Those little swinging doors, and we'd just go, bam, and just bust through those doors. And my granddad had his chair over there. That that's just where he did his thing, in his chair. My brother and I would truck over there, and we would just jump and leap into his lap, and we would sit there, one on one leg, and one on the other, and he, and he would just hold us. And then he'd tell us our, bre- our breath smelled like cordwood, which I don't know what cordwood is, but I'm assuming that's not a good thing. But that's just like what he did every time. Hey, your breath smells like cordwood. Thanks, Papa. You know? And then the, the rest of the time, we would just sit there on his lap and just sit there and watch a cooking show or he'd fall asleep and we'd just sit there. And it's because it was the best place in that house to be. There's all the other kind of things we could do, but we just wanted to be right there on his lap because of, because of how much he loved us. Now I love my granddad and he's amazing. I can't wait to see him again. But his love doesn't compare to, to the love of Jesus. And, and the great thing about my granddad was no matter how crazy I was when I had my ponytail, I mean, all, this, all the things that I've gone through, he, he just would let me sit on his lap. I mean, I can remember sitting on his lap when I was in college. 
because it was the best place to be. And I just want to let you know, the best place that you can be, the absolute best place that you can be is in the lap of Jesus. And you're invited there all times, even when you blow it, even when you're like the church of Laodicea and have just completely gone south. All you have to do is recognize the fact that you've blown it and you're right back there. You don't have to earn it. You just get to receive it. So I think the worship team's going to come back. We're going to just have, if you want to come and get prayer, you're welcome to. If you just want to sit and um, relish in the fact that you're sitting in the lap of Jesus right now, I just want to encourage you to do that as well. And then you can close us when you're finished. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you're that good. Uh, that you would do that for us. And Father, I pray tonight, or I pray this morning, that you would come and just uh, let that sink in past our minds. Lord, let this not just be information, but Lord, would this become a revelation that would lead to our minds becoming the mind of Christ and becoming like you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.